All right, well, we're moving along in our study of 1 John titled Living in the Light. We are in 1 John, we are in chapter 5, and we are looking at verses 6 through 12. So if you've got it on your phone or a Bible handy, feel free to turn there. It's always good to have scripture open as uh, someone is, is preaching. So now, have you ever given someone a crisp $100 bill to have them hold it up to the light and, and interrogate it suspiciously? How does that make you feel, right? Like you're a criminal or something, right? Well, it's taken me a while, but I've learned to not take offense at this. I mean, you can't blame someone who doesn't know you for taking a close look at a large bill to see if it's genuine. Now, of course, if the person does know you, well, then you've got a, you've got a trust problem there. John's letter that we've been studying takes a turn today. He's beginning to wrap up his letter, and today he begins a section that is meant to assure his readers. T today he assures us that we have come to believe the genuine truth concerning God and salvation. Now, you know, the world that we live in, same as back then, uh, the same world today, it's full of competing views of who God is, or, or if he even exists, or if maybe... God is many gods, or whatever you want to name. Now, how can you know for sure that the one life that you have to live has been founded upon genuine truth, and you're not living a lie? Well, let's look. There is a testimony for us. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we delight in the truth that you have spoken, that, that we can genuinely know you. You have given us not just creation that speaks of a wonderful creator, but you've given us your word that helps us to know you personally um, help us this morning to be assured of these truths help us by your spirit of truth in us uh, to confirm these truths that we may love and honor and worship you in all we do amen <clears throat> take a minute to imagine being a goldfish in a tiny little goldfish bowl the goldfish the goldfish's view of the world is extremely limited, right? And it's also said that goldfish only have a three-second memory. 
So try to picture the view of a goldfish as he swims around in that tiny little goldfish bowl. Blub, blub, blub. <gasps> Look, a pirate ship. Blub, blub, blub. <gasps> a treasure chest. Blub, blub, blub. <gasps> Look, a pirate ship. <laughs> blub, blub, blub. A treasure chest. Poor goldfish. With tiny mental capacities and a severely limited environment, the goldfish lives in almost absolute ignorance. And of course, as they say, ignorance is bliss. The goldfish has a view of the world. In our grace groups, our discipleship groups, we've been studying something called a worldview. Everybody has a view of the world. Phil Riken writes, that a worldview is the structure of understanding that we use to make sense of the world. Our worldview is what we presuppose. It's our way of looking at life, our interpretation of the universe, our orientation with reality. Our worldview is the story we tell to answer questions like, you're familiar with these questions, why is there anything at all? How can we know for sure? How did we get here? And what are we here for? Anyway, why have all things gone bad so badly wrong? Is there any hope of fixing them? What should I do with my life? And where will it all end? You know, though we don't really give it much thought, everyone has a worldview that drives their life. Now, what's your worldview about? What's at the center of it? Think this through. Worldviews are also inherently religious. Riken states, because our worldview is at the core who we are, it always reveals our fundamental convictions, including what we believe or don't believe about God. There is no spiritual neutrality, no view from nowhere. Even atheists and agnostics direct their lives towards some greater purpose. Consider one of John Lennon's songs. This is one of the more popular songs titled Imagine. You all know that song, don't you? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Now, I like John Lennon. Let that be perfectly clear and on the record this morning. Uh, and I actually like the melody to his song, Imagine. I too also long for a day, as this song goes on to say, where there's no need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. But let's be clear, John Lennon is espousing his particular worldview. And in the song, he's trying to get you to leave your worldview behind and embrace his, right? You remember how the song goes? You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. What John Lennon is saying is that the only hope for the world is that you embrace his world and worldview and join his tribe, which shows us that our worldviews are ultimately in conflict with each other's. And so listen, your worldview is extremely important. See, either Lenin is right or Jesus is right. There, is, there either is no God, no heaven, or hell. 
It's just us humans down here all alone trying to make the world a better place. Or there is a God and a heaven and a hell. And it isn't just us humans alone here on earth, but God has come down in Christ to fix all that mankind has ruined and, and will one day finish this renewal of all things. There are so many different worldviews competing for our lives. And how are we to know we've come to believe the right one? That was an issue in those churches to whom John was writing. Another worldview was threatening the church. And so John writes to assure them and us that, that, that you're on the right track. The truth that you've received that's informed your worldview is the truth that needs to inform your worldview. In our passage, John says there is a testimony that God gives us that must inform our worldview. We see it in, it's a testimony in verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. John shows us today that we have evidence, evidence from heaven, from God himself. And John's words are intended to let the testimony of God assure us that the truth is in us. So there's two parts to this passage that are pretty clearly marked out as you read it through. In verses 6 through 9, we see God's three-part testimony. And then in verses 10 through 12, John speaks to us about what our response needs to be to this testimony. So we're going to divide our time under those headings, God's testimony and our response. First, let's look at God's testimony. I don't know about you, but those, that verse 6 can be a bit confusing, can it not? And, and know this, even some of the greatest Christian minds and, and commentators have struggled with the precise exact meaning of John's um, argument there. But let's not lose heart. The general sense of what John is trying to say is crystal clear. But here's what John writes. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Oh, and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, there's at least five different um, ways to process this. As I look through the commentaries, at least five. Maybe you've got another one. Uh, what exactly does the water and the blood mean? And so we're not going to get too far off into the weeds today. Uh, in truth, John is trying to communicate a really simple point. John is saying that to get Jesus right and to therefore have the correct worldview with Jesus in it, um, you, you need to listen to the testimony of Jesus' water baptism and his bloody cross. At Jesus' baptism, remember the scene? John wrote about it, and no doubt these, these churches had read John's letter, so they were familiar with it. God spoke from heaven, saying, You are my son, in whom I am well pleased. The testimony of the water is meant to inform the world that Jesus is divine. He is God's eternal son. He came, into the, to, to came to earth with a purpose, and God is pleased with him. But it's not enough just to have Jesus, the baptism, the testimony of the water. There's also the testimony of the blood, that God's son died on the cross for the sins of the world, and that, that he rose in victory over the grave. Now, why is it that John went to such pains to say, no, uh, not just by the water, but by the blood also? 
Well, there's a simple reason that the Christian churches to whom John was shepherding, to whom he had written this letter, there were false teachers who were insisting a number of different things. And certainly one of them was that, you know what, Jesus only came by the water. He didn't come by the blood. See, there were early Gnostic teachers there, among them a man named Serinthus, who taught that Jesus became the Christ, like Jesus the ordinary man, became the Christ, the Son of God, at his baptism. But then he ceased to be Christ and returned to being just an ordinary man, no longer the Son of God, right before his death. In other words, Jesus, the, or excuse me, Christ descended on Jesus at the time of his baptism and departed before him before his crucifixion. And apparently this type of teaching was making its way into the congregation. And John is making sure that their worldview is genuinely Christian and that they need to listen to the testimony, not just of Jesus' baptism, but of his death as well. Legan Duncan, who I'm indebted to this morning, here's what he writes. He says, understand this, that Jesus, who is the Messiah, Jesus, who is the Son of God, did not come, uh, become the Son of God at his baptism, but through the baptism, it was revealed who he was. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. It was declared who he was. At his death, he did not cease to be the Messiah, the Son of God, but his being the Messiah and the Son of God, listen, was absolutely necessary for his death to have benefit for us all. And therefore, this false teaching is to be refuted. John is pressing home one important truth. If Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, did not take on himself our nature at his birth and bear our sins in his death then in the in the fullness of who he is as the as the divine son if jesus didn't do that then he cannot reconcile us to god we need a divine savior who takes upon him our sins so john is simply saying that the false teachers in teaching what they are teaching about jesus are robbing christians of salvation because who Jesus is, who he is, is essential to our salvation. And confessing what the Bible teaches about the person of Christ is essential to authentic Christian faith. Moving on. Perhaps you already know this, but the Old Testament law requires the testimony of two or three witnesses for somebody to be convicted of wrongdoing, right? You've heard that if you read through scripture, right? In verses 7 and 8, John writes, For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And by the way, these three agree. <laughs> the testimony of the water and the blood refer to what? Historical events which were central to Jesus' ministry on earth. And the testimony of the spirit refers to an internal testimony that we experience. And, and as the Spirit works in us, we come to see as truth those two other events, the, the water and the blood. They're all in agreement. The water and the blood refer to a testimony from God that is objective. They happened in time and space. And check this out. The testimony of the Holy Spirit is a testimony from God that is subjective. A genuine Christian is someone who has received both the objective testimony, truth to the head, and subjective testimony from God 
dwelling in us. Remember what John or, or Paul wrote in Romans 8. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit with a capital S, bears witness with our spirit, small s, that we are children of God. God's Spirit speaks to our spirit, confirming, testifying, guess what? You're a child of God. Without the Holy Spirit's work, the testimony of Jesus' baptism and Jesus' death will be what? Foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But when the Spirit of God moves in us, he gives us an experiential understanding. The Spirit of truth causes us to see God's truth as true truth. And we embrace Christ as he is portrayed in Scripture. And guess what? Our worldview has changed forever. Now, of course... The same truth is being denied in our very own day and age. There are people who call themselves Christians who deny this essential truth that makes you a Christian. That Jesus performed miracles, or that he rose from the dead, or that he really was God. People say they're a Christian and still hold to those falsehoods. John is saying you cannot say yes to Jesus and reject the Bible's claims about who Jesus is. Jesus, the word of God, defines himself. Jesus defines himself for us in God's word, the Bible. We may either believe in the Jesus who is offered in the gospel, or we may reject him. But we cannot say, I accept you, Jesus, but I'll define you the way I want to. John is making it clear that the only Jesus who saves is the Jesus Christ who's presented to us by the revelation of God in Scripture and testified to us by the Holy Spirit speaking into our hearts and our minds. This is God's testimony. It's the best testimony you could ever listen to. John says in this letter, he says, if, if we listen to the testimony of men, how much more so should we listen to the testimony of God, right? Now, at the end of the day, we'll either accept this testimony or we will reject it, which is why the next few verses address our response to God's testimony. You guys ready? All right. In this text, we see that there are only two possible responses to this testimony. Believe God's testimony or not believe God's testimony. And there are eternal consequences for either choice. First, let's look at those who believe the testimony. In verse 10, John says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. In himself. See, the purpose of the testimony is to promote faith in you. The Christian is one who has received the testimony. He or she believes the gospel. The testimony is now in us. It's a part of us. It changes us in all sorts of ways, including how we think about the world. And how, and how could it not be? It's what gives us life. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. And verse 12 begins, whoever has the son has life. Eternal life. Listen, eternal life isn't just life that goes on and on and on, and you keep looking at your watch. Oh, this is so boring. Why do I have to keep looking at these old magazines? No. Eternal life isn't just eternal. It's not just eternal. It's life. Life as God defines it, life of joy and happiness and peace. Well, and this is a gift from God. God gave us eternal life as he defines it. 
God gives us a new birth, a new life, a new Lord, and a new view of the world. And we now become cherished participants in God's big and glorious story of eternal redemption and renewal. All for just saying, I believe that. Isn't that amazing? Now let's look at those who answer, no, I don't believe. What does John say concerning them? Well, the second part of verse 10, we read, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has borne concerning his sons. Now, this is the second time in John's letter that he's called those who um, don't believe in Christ. He's called them liars, right? That sounds a bit harsh, but as you think it through, you'll come to see, actually, that's the proper term. See, typically, we attribute unbelief to what? Just lack of information, right? I don't believe because I just don't have enough information. But a liar is what? Liar is someone who knows the truth, but won't admit it at some level for some sort of reason. So how is it that John could call them liars? Well, this is where it gets fun. Um, the work of J.R.R. Tolkien helps us here. You know Tolkien, he wrote Lord of the Rings and, and The Hobbits. Maybe he didn't read the books, but I'm sure he has seen the movies. All right. Well, he also wrote an essay that I, I read a few years ago. I encourage you to, to find it. You can find the PDF online. It's an essay titled On Fairy Stories. Yes, On Fairy Stories. And in this essay, Tolkien argues that fairy tales and myths, though not true, listen, they actually point to some deeper true truth that we believe. And that, listen, all good stories, the ones that we resonate with, the ones that at the end we start crying, you know, where you're like acting like you're not crying, you know, I do that, I'm like, that my glasses are dirty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm going to go get some ice cream, right? You know those stories? In his essay, Tolkien, he coins a phrase. He, he, he says that the gospel is the eucatastrophe behind all these good stories. Now, what in the world is a eucatastrophe? Well, it comes from the Greek. It's a compound word. A eu, meaning good, like a eulogy, right? Or euangelion, that's the Greek word for gospel, you, and uh, angalos, which is a message, good message, good news. Well, a eucatastrophe comes from the Greek word u, meaning good, and catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, that's the Greek word. And what does that mean? Catastrophe. So, um, Token says, he wrote elsewhere, he said, I coined the word eucatastrophe, which describes the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with joy that brings tears, which I argued is the highest function of fairy stories to produce. You're going to want to read that essay, aren't you? Now, my friends, when we think of all the great stories that we read or watch on TV, are they not eucatastrophes? The story begins in a happy state, and then some sort of evil comes in, some criminal or something. He invades the story and causes a catastrophe, but then a, a hero arrives um, with a victory that overcomes the evil, and then a lasting good at the end takes place out of the catastrophe. You, catastrophe. Good comes out of catastrophe. And what Tolkien says is that Beneath all of the stories that we love, like To Kill a Mockingbird, right, or, or Saving Private Ryan, or even Groundhog Day, 
There lies an echo of the great you catastrophe so that deep down we know that good triumphing over evil is in the end true. The great you catastrophe story that all those stories are based upon is, of course, the gospel, the Gelion. God created a good universe, but evil intruded and mankind fell. But God sent his son who died on the cross and the tomb could not hold him for he rose in victory over sin and death and he reigns in heaven from which he will return one day and usher in God's eternal kingdom in which those who believe the testimony will one day enjoy. Tolkien is saying that though you might not believe that great catastrophe, the gospel, you know deep down inside it must be true. Keller illustrates this point by, by saying this. Tim Keller points out that how manufacturers of medicine these days, they've gotten kids to swallow it. Medicine now tastes like what? Candy. <laughs> and so the child consciously takes the candy in and swallows the candy, but the body isn't fooled. Consciously, it's candy, but the body knows it's medicine, and the body responds to it as medicine. The body draws out the truth. And that is what Tolkien has been getting at. Anytime we're captivated by a great story, be it a book or a movie, it is but a shadow of the gospel. And, and even though up here in our human skepticism, we've perhaps written it all off, the whole idea of God or the supernatural or heaven and hell or miracles. Your mind thinks it's candy, but your soul knows it's true. What Tolkien and later C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis came to faith in Christ because Tolkien talked to him about fairy stories. This is what got C.S. Lewis thinking about the bigger stories of life. So what Tolkien and Lewis came to see is that old myths, though they weren't factual, listen, were telling you truths. For instance, there's no such thing as a real Hercules. Historically, there's no such thing as Hercules or Helen of Troy, but these myths tell you something about an underlying reality. It tells you that there is a love that overcomes death. And that character is more important than money. And so you respond to them, do you not? And so what Tolkien teaches is that the reality to which all this points to actually came down from heaven of imagination into history. It happened on a particular date at a particular place. This is what he's saying. You've seen Beauty and the Beast, right? Who doesn't like that, right? Beauty kisses the beast and suddenly his ugliness falls away and is transformed. Is that historically true? No, but it points to an awesome reality. Up here, our heads don't believe it. We've all gone to college, right? Well, maybe not some of you. Um, we've all been taught that there's no such thing as absolute truth, so we say, you know, I can just live my life the way I want to. Whatever my worldview is, it really doesn't matter. But then you go to see beauty and the beast and something gets to you. What's going on? 
Your mind says it's candy, but your soul knows it's true. There is a love that can cut through all the prisons and all the dungeons that sin has created. The same is true with Peter Pan. What's it about? It's about a golden age in which no one gets old and bodies are capable of flying. And you will say, well, we don't believe in that. We don't believe in eternity. We won't believe that there ever was a time like that. Nor will ever be a time like that when everything is perfect and nobody gets old. Your mind will tell you that. Your mind will say it's candy. But your soul knows better. So too Sleeping Beauty. It says death is not the end. So too the Lion King. It tells us that when the true king is in charge, everything is in harmony. And so, listen, can you, can you connect the dots? That is how John can say anyone who does not believe the testimony is a liar. They really do know, deep down, inside, that it's true. Jesus Christ is the awesome reality to which all soul-satisfying stories point us to. Jesus is the king from heaven who has fully proven that there is a love that overcomes death. And that character is more important than money, so don't store up treasure on earth. And where Christ the King rules, everything is in harmony. And that death is not the end. And that there is a golden age to come where everything is perfect and nobody gets old. Your mind says it's candy, but your soul knows it's true. Christian, you believe what is true. Be assured of that. And so John says that if you say no to the testimony, if you're here today and you're saying no to all this, it seems like fairy tales to me. You've proven yourself to be a liar because deep down, your soul knows it's true. Listen, John points out the consequences of continuing to suppress the truth. Look at the end of verse 12. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There you go. Pretty, pretty specific. Pretty simple. You don't have life. Life as God defines it. Of course not. You've got the life as you defined it. But what you're left with is non-life. <laughs> A life where skepticism rules over the longings of your soul. A life of chasing after the wind. A life of candy eating and self-placating while your soul starves. A life of puny, worldly victories, which never satisfy. So try to wrap your head around this. By continuing to say no to the testimony that your soul says yes to, you forfeit the very reality that your soul longs for. Your soul says, yes, it must be true, but your mind says, meh, I'm too smart for that. Do you see the irony of unbelief? Now, for those who do believe, rest assured, John tells us that whoever has the son, wow, um, there is a testimony from heaven that is meant to assure your soul here this morning. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is nowhere else but in his son. And it's as simple as this. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. But listen, it's also as satisfying as that. This is God's gift to us. God has given us eternal life. It is a gift to open. And we, by faith, have opened it. And when we open it, we realize that our view of the world has come alive. And our wings take to flight. Do you believe? And do you see? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we praise you in this hour that you, being fully God, the third person of the Trinity, have taken upon yourself the role of pointing us to truth, pressing it deep into our souls, causing us to delight in it. You have made us new. You are forming our view of the world. May we, Heavenly Father, as your children, uh, cast aside all other earthly cares that, that try to rob us of a proper worldview. May we root our view of the world in scripture and, of course, in the great you catastrophe that has given us life. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.